0: Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, Senior Instructor at Institute on the Constitution, and with me on this fine Friday morning is my collaborator, Phil Duffy, our Constitutional Instructor, and we're talking about the foundational principles that are needed to be uh, established before we actually construct a constitution that would be for the betterment of uh, our our situation and this morning we're talking in particular about the issue of war wow and I was just looking this morning at uh, a, a listing of all the wars that our country has been engaged in we know the you know the the main ones, the War for Independence in 1812 and the Mexican War and Spanish-American and civil. Anyway, we've got a list of those, but there's a whole lot more than the, are on the standard list in the, in the fact that there was a whole bunch of Indian wars. Well, one of the things that historians note in, in terms of what happens with government in times of war is government always seeks to expand its power, its reach, its scope, its level of taxation, basically everything that government does in a time of war, it expands. And what is usually contracted in a time of war is... uh the protection of the God-given rights of the people, as we see happens again and again and again. And so this morning, as we examine this issue of war, we need to consider the fact that I guess we're still in the war on terror. Is that, is that right, Phil? Is that what you understand? Mm-hmm. The war on terror is still going on? We, know, we've got a war
1: on terror. We've got a war on drugs. We've got a war on uh, poverty. poverty yeah.
0: I guess that one's still going on. right? <laughs> all, right. These, all these wars that are actually continuing to expand and grow the size, scope, and the reach of civil government, while at the same time contracting its protection of our God-given rights. Well, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts on, on this whole subject as we lay these foundation stones that are essential in order to construct a solid constitutional republic.
1: Well, one of the most recognizable parables in the Gospels is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let me read it. beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him he took pity on him. He went to him and bandages his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The parable challenges us because something in our nature seems to call us to find causes that offend us, thereby to define enemies. Outside of the realm of faith, but within the realm of political action. The question posed of Jesus needs to be restated, and who is my enemy? For the vast majority of us who are among the governed, we perceive few enemies. But within the governing class, there are many enemies because without them, the need for the governing class withers. It seems that the governing class is in the business of creating enemies, and then convincing us that they are real and a permanent danger to our very existence. History, however, demonstrates that this idea is absurd. For example, the United States were formed by the breaking away from the control of their arch enemy, Great Britain. Again, in 1812, citizens of the United States were convinced that Great Britain was our enemy. In 1917, however, we joined with Britain to combat a new enemy, Germany, and later, in 1941, to combat another mutual enemy, the Japanese. At the conclusion of World War II, we were soon exerting ourselves to to help the nations we once defeated become our friends so we could join with them against new enemies. Our enemies may become apparent in the heat of the moment, but the long-term concept of an enemy is unrealistic. Today's enemy is tomorrow's friend, and today's friend may become tomorrow's enemy. How can we as a nation minimize the number of our enemies? George Washington expressed an idea well in his farewell address. The great rule of conduct for us in regard to foreign nations is, in extending our commercial relations, to have with them as little political connection as possible. So far as we have already formed engagements, Let them be fulfilled with perfect good faith. Here, let us stop. John Quincy Adams stated the principle more concisely. Americans should not go abroad to slay dragons they do not understand in the name of democracy. What are the implications of this principle for a new constitution? There are three areas to consider. One, the definition of the act of treason. Two, avoidance of undeclared military operations. And three, how the surveillance state is to be constrained. The three areas are closely related. Let's look at the act of treason first. The current Constitution defines treason in Article 2, Section 3. Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. No person shall be convicted of treason less on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or on confession in open court. It is clear that the framers of the Constitution of 1787 foresaw the danger of allowing the federal government, and in particular the executive branch through its Department of Justice, to define treason. But in seeking to define treason, they merely used another undefined term, enemies. That brings us full circle to the thought expressed in the opening of these comments. And who is my enemy? Fortunately, the answer is clear. The United States have no enemies except those who are identified through a constitutional declaration of war. That may make some people uncomfortable. Wasn't Iraq our enemy when we went to war twice with that nation at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st? However, if Iraq were our enemy, why weren't the representatives of the people, Congress, required to make that determination through a declaration of war? Why was the executive branch and ultimately one person, the president, Allowed to make that momentous decision in conflict with the spirit of the Constitution of 1787. Consider the absurdity of our government's action preceding the first Iraq War. Iraq was previously considered so much an ally that the United States government was sending that nation weapons to be used against another of this nation's alleged enemies, Iran. But today's enemy can be yesterday's ally. Our interventions in the Middle East become even more ridiculous when we reflect on the justification for the second war on Iraq. Three reasons were given, although the third only emerged after the first two proved to be invalid. The first was the presence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Notice that the United uh, United Kingdom, France, Russia, China, Israel, India, Pakistan, and North Korea have acknowledged to possess weapons of mass destruction, and that Iraq denied having them. Did we attack any of those eight nations? It is also one thing to possess a nuclear weapon, and another to have the potential to deliver it against the United States. Iraq clearly did not possess that capability. The second charge against Iraq was that its government was providing a safe haven for terrorists. Again, the charge could be expanded to other nations, but Iraq was the enemy at the time. The logic of this charge becomes apparent when we acknowledge that Saddam Hussein was the classic dictator. And what dictator would harbor agents of another dictator? After the second war, the inspectors searched Iraq unsuccessfully for evidence of weapons of mass destruction. Finding none, the George W. Bush administration found it necessary to cook up justification for an otherwise purposeless and undeclared war. The United States was bringing democracy to the Middle East. At the point of a gun? Anybody reading the Federalist essays deeply will realize that the framers of the Constitution of 1787 feared democracy as much as they feared monarchy and empires. If the United States were to export anything, It would be the principles of a federation of sovereign Republican states. Here is where we should have heeded Washington's and John Quincy Adams' words and recognize that another nation's form of government is a matter of self-determination and may not be imposed externally. Let's look at the second issue here, undeclared military operations. It should be apparent that requiring Congress to engage in debate and action whenever the United States considered offensive military actions is the key to constraining the growth of of the imperial state. Congress needs to be answerable to the people before the federal government assumes the awesome responsibility of engaging in war. Otherwise, the principle of representative government is meaningless. Today, that is Congress's most important responsibility. Consider that Congress has had more than two and a quarter centuries to build a structure of statute law around the powers granted to it by the Constitution. Our federal representatives complain of being overworked. Indeed, they are, but with their efforts to destroy the freedoms of the people by usurping their powers. Legitimate service in Congress should be the ultimate part-time job. There is little that Congress needs to do but to create an annual budget. And that task is trivial if Congress were to remain within the uh, confines of the Constitution. What are the true needs of defense? Every nation's need for defense is different, depending upon the amount of territory to be defended and upon the nature of the cultures on its borders. The United States is blessed to have the world's longest unguarded border with Canada. The United States do not fear invasion by Canada, and Canada should not fear invasion from the United States, since the latter failed twice, ending uh, with the War of 1812. In addition, the United States are bordered by the Atlantic Ocean, the uh, the Gulf of Mexico, and the Pacific Ocean. No other major nation on earth has been similarly blessed. By comparison, Russia and China each have 14 bordering nations, most of which differ in their cultures from Russia and China. Based upon those facts, one would expect the United States to have a modest military budget uh, establishment. To the contrary, its so-called defense budget exceeds that of the next 10 nations combined. The largest of those budgets belongs to China, a nation separated from the United States by the world's largest ocean, the Pacific. So how do we constrain the surveillance state? Lacking constraint, the inherent nature of government is to grow by destroying individual freedom. The most effective way for government to grow is to maintain a short list of external enemies. When this fails, it must pursue the need to create internal enemies. The most effective route to accomplish that is the existence of a crisis, naturally or politically created. The route is so clearly marked that it has its own textbook, Robert Higgs' Crisis and Leviathan. Among the most dangerous threats to individual liberty is a government surveillance agencies. Perhaps there are none at the municipal level, but at the federal level in the United States, they are almost uncountable. Do an internet query on the number of government organizations involved in intelligence gathering, and you'll get responses that range from 19 to 1,271, even accepting the more conservative number it is obvious that the federal government is operating a lot of surveillance organizations. First, there is the superficial question of whether 19 individual surveillance organizations is cost effective. But then there is the deeper question of whether a more cost effective federal uh, surveillance community is consistent with individual liberty. No study has ever demonstrated that the people who run or are employed by these agencies are nearer to sainthood than the average citizen. Jefferson would have said that it is self-evident that the people in these organizations are more biased toward big, centralized government. As with the average citizen, they are driven as much by self-interest as by lofty goals for the general welfare. As much as they might accept the principle that surveillance should be directed against foreign entities, Maintaining that boundary seems impossible for them. Operating in secrecy with only superficial oversight, the chances of being caught transgressing that line seems minimal. It is difficult to develop hard and fast rules that would balance the nation's true need for security with individual liberty. The most important limitation on the unchecked power of government surveillance organizations is the distinction between real current enemies through the declaration of war process. The primary emphasis must be the surveillance of those enemies. It is with potential enemies that the challenge of surveillance arises. And this is where constraint and due process must be exercised most vigorously. Although surveillance of foreign nationals who might be potential enemies can be legitimate under certain circumstances, Surveillance of a nation's citizens never is. That is to say that citizens may not be investigated by a governmental organization where there is reasonable evidence of a crime having been committed. Surveillance extends beyond legitimate investigation to screen and spy upon groups because they oppose programs promoted by the government. Among the most insidious of these infractions is the targeting of anybody supporting the Constitution of the United States and pro-life groups as being far-right extremists. The concept of a so-called far-right extremist should have been thoroughly discredited in 1974 when Republican Senator Barry Goldwater informed Republican President Richard Nixon he would not defend him in a Senate impeachment trial. This was one of the most statesmanlike and nonpartisan actions in the nation's history. This was the same Barry Goldwater who had been successfully labeled as a right-wing extremist 10 years earlier in the 1964 presidential election. Returning to the question about the number of surveillance organizations and whether that is consistent with individual liberty, An argument might be made that by separating these organizations, they become a check on each other, but it is virtually impossible to find any evidence this has happened. We expect these federal organizations to coordinate and cooperate with each other, and the evidence suggests that this is what they do. If there is any competition among them, it is only for budget and power. They all operate in the executive branch of the federal government which theoretically makes them accountable to the president. But there is no accountability because by definition, they operate in secrecy. Oversight in Congress is further frustrated by the sheer numbers of these organizations. Where should surveillance power be located in government? Federated governments work best when their powers are limited and specific. Any powers granted to federated government are at the expense of the states and the people the states represent. Certainly, the first step is to reduce the numbers of enemies, current or potential. For example, the current electorate has been uh, conditioned to view the Islamic nations of the Middle East as potential enemies. Proclamations made by their leaders seem, seem to give credence to their potential enemy status. But when relations between nations is measured by people-to-people as opposed to -to government-to-government criteria, one can come to a very different conclusion. Most citizens of the United States have no interest in provoking Iranian citizens. Indeed, many cannot even find Iran on the map. Likewise, most Iranian citizens have no interest in provoking United States citizens. Left to their own devices and recognizing mutual benefit, individual citizens will trade across national boundaries. At the same time, they may or may not accept part of their trading partner's culture. All of this interchange occurs naturally and peaceably. It is only when government interferes in this natural exchange that animosities arise, some of which lead to outright war. It is a mistake to allow federated government to be in this position. It must be kept on a short leash. That requires that control be moved back closer to the people, to the states that represent the people. And that means that both investigatory and surveillance functions be controlled by a council of the states and not any arm of the federal government.
0: Oh, amen, Phil. I agree that the the problem is we have allowed or ceded way too much power uh, to the federal government. And you're very right to point out that uh, the surveillance state and the enormous apparatus of the surveillance state spying on all of us, as uh, you know, the whistleblower revealed that uh, uh, they were scooping up all of our phone calls and all of our activity on the Internet and our bank account record, just about every bit of information on us that's available, they were vacuuming that up. All of which, of course, is a violation of the Fourth Amendment, which says that we have a guarantee uh, to be secure in our our papers and persons unless a crime has been committed, and therefore a proper warrant has been issued uh, to investigate this crime. Well, there's no crime being committed here. It's just they're vacuuming up everyone's information in this enormous surveillance state, Uh, and the government that spies on its people is a very dangerous beast because that data that it gathers on each one of us is uh, ultimately going to be used against us, uh, I believe. Well, one of the biggest times that uh, government advances in increasing its reach, its scope, its power, and obviously its expenditures is in time of war. Wars have always been used historically throughout the history of the world. They've been used to increase government spending. uh, They've been used to curtail free speech. And they've been used basically to expand the power and the reach of, of the government itself. And the people who lose out in that deal are always the citizens, as we have less and less of our God-given rights uh, protected and secured. And when we think of, of this uh, in our uh, you know, recent history, recent that is the last 100 years, a little more than 100 years now, World War I was one of those enormous expansions of the federal government power. During Woodrow Wilson's first term as president, the federal government was on the eve of World War I. It was very small. For example, 1914, federal spending totaled less than 2% of the GNP. And the top rate enacted federal individual income tax was just 7%, and that was on incomes over half a million. So very, very few people only about 1% of the population owed any income tax at all. 99% of the people paid zero because they were not in uh, that category. And the federal government only had 402,000 federal civilian employees, most of whom were post office workers. And so they actually only constituted about 1% of the labor force. So before World War I, there was a very small government. In fact, our armed forces, comprised fewer than 166,000 men on active duty. And uh, so although the government had been meddling in some areas of economic life, and it had been prescribing things like railroad rates and antitrust suits against a handful of uh, firms and so forth, for most citizens, the federal government was remote, it was unimportant, and it did not touch their life on any daily basis all that began to change enormously with uh, what was called the Great War, you know, the war to end all wars. (laughs) What a propaganda joke that is. Yeah, the war to end all wars. Uh, What happened since that? We've had plenty of wars. Well, the federal government expanded enormously in its size, in its scope, and in its power and reach into the lives of individual citizens. And during the war, the the federal government nationalized the ocean shipping industry. Uh, They almost they did actually nationalize the railroad and they nationalized the telephone and domestic telegraph, international telegraph cable. All these things were nationalized, and uh, the government actually became engaged in manipulating labor management relationships uh, and even sa- sales of, of securities on the stock market, agriculture production, and marketing and the distribution of coal and oil, international commerce. All of these things became highly regulated by the federal government during World War I. And, of course, its liberty bonds drives dominated the financial capital markets during the war. And it turned to that newly created Federal Reserve System, which is not federal and it has no reserves. It's a private banking cartel. I call them banksters because they've criminally uh, stolen from the American people for 110 years now. But they use that Federal Reserve System as a powerful money inflation machine. It helped to satisfy the government's endless appetite for money and for credit and uh, that, that mobilization of all the agencies and all the soldiers to go to war, the Great War, to end all wars. So they said, hey, we, have, we have to do this because it's, it's a wartime. And that's usually the excuse. There's an emergency. It's a wartime. And we have to set aside the limits of the Constitution because uh, uh, the war is got to be won by whatever means. And so the armed forces were built up, four million uh, strong of officers and men, um, and uh, the labor force before the war was forty million. So that's you know about ten percent of the total labor force were uh, conscripted into the war. And by the way, they were conscripted. Here was a draft. Think about that. The Thirteenth Amendment of our Constitution supposedly ended. Uh, involuntary servitude, that is, you could not be forced into slavery if you wanted to choose to be a slave. Yeah, I guess you could choose to do that according to the 13th Amendment, but involuntary servitude was abolished. Wait a minute. Well, what about the draft? Isn't that a form of involuntary? Those young men were not volunteering to go over there in Europe and fight the Great War. No, they were forced to, essentially at gunpoint, to go fight Uncle Sam's war Uh, in the great European theater. Well, that's even, you might say, almost worse than chattel slavery, because in chattel slavery, at least you're not being shot at and might be killed in the trenches in France or or, or wherever, dying in a a mud pile. But uh, that is, so the draft is an ultimate uh, form of the the government taking control directly of your life Uh, and uh, the 2.8 million uh, were uh, drafted into the war Uh, and uh, the mobilization began. All the resources of the country were gathered by the federal government and uh, the war was ultimately won. Now, the government further subverted the Bill of Rights by censoring all printed materials during the time of the war. That is, you couldn't say anything that the government didn't want you to say. And it also preemptively deported hundreds of aliens without due process and uh, encouraged state and local governments to take uh, vigilante groups to go in warrantless searches and seizures, blanket arrests of those who were suspected as draft evaders. And, oh, there's many, many outrages during the war. Now, when the war ended, the government did abandon most but not all of its wartime control measures. And this is usually what happens. You know, there's a great extreme during the wartime war ends and there's a retraction of that, but the new powers gained by the government are not given up even after the war is uh, concluded. And so when World War II began, the size and scope of the federal government was much greater than it had been 25 years earlier, uh, owing mainly to the expansion due to World War I and uh, the preservation of many of the elements of what the, the federal government became. So uh, the New Deal was in, the, in that time frame as well, leading up to World War II. Now federal spending expanded enormously, now equaled 10 percent of GNP, and the labor force is 56 million. So the federal government employed about 1.3 million persons uh, in regular civilian and military jobs, another 3.3 million uh, in emergency uh, work relief programs. The national debt outside the government had grown to 40 billion, 40 billion. And most importantly, the scope of federal regulation had increased enormously to embrace agricultural uh, production during the New Deal, uh, marketing and labor management relationships, wages, hours, work conditions, security markets, investment institutions, petroleum uh, extraction, coal and uh, mining and marketing and trucking and radio broadcasting, airline operations. all. Oh, and by the way, Social Security and so provision for Retirement and unemployment. Oh, so many things during that time. But this was all before World War II. And World War II just kind of looked uh, through gasoline on this fire. And the 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 federal government assumed vastly greater dimensions as a result of the war. So the war conscripted uh, armed forces, ultimately comprising more than 12 million men and women. It inquired. It required enormous amounts of money complementary resources for housing and all of these things. So the Treasury in World War II was 10 times more expensive than World War I. In other words, twice, at 10 times more. Many new taxes, therefore, were levied. Income taxes were raised repeatedly. And so there's only about 1% or so before World War I that were paying any income tax. Well, in the war, uh, uh, 90% uh, percent began to be paying income taxes, some of them for the very first time it became a mass tax rather than the tax just on the the wealthy and so uh, by 1945 50 million people in america were paying income tax unlike uh, before the war where it was about 15 million so the federal revenue soared to 7 billion from 7 billion excuse me before the war to 50 billion that's between 1940 and 1945 Uh, But it still wasn't enough, and so they had to borrow extensively, and the national debt rose to an unheard of level at the end of World War II, $200 billion, more than five-fold of what it had been before. And of course, the Federal Reserve System bought a good $20 of that government debt, thereby serving as a printing press essentially for the Treasury, uh, and, and the money stock grew, all of these things. What the result was is the power and the extent and the reach of our federal government grew enormously. Uh, Massive violations of human rights in our country, massive violations of our Bill of Rights. Involuntary servitude, of course, was back with the draft and military conscription. Uh, And by the way, how about those blameless persons of Japanese ancestry? About 112,000 of them interred in what you can call concentration camps. Without due process of law, they hadn't committed any crime, just their nationality, uh, and, and on and on it goes of uh, newspapers being denied the privilege of using the mails because, you know, the government didn't like what they were printed. printing. The Office of Censorship, restricting the content of the press reports, and uh, the government seizing more than 60 industrial facilities. Uh, and sometimes they did this really because they were uh, favoring labor against management, so they just basically stole the, the factory uh, from the from the management. Now, by the end of the war, most of these economic control agencies were shut down, but many of the powers that uh, the federal government had gained persisted. They may have been at the local level, like in New York City. Rent controls never went away after the war was over. Federal tax revenues remained high because all that and now we're into a new war, the Cold War, uh, and the IRS's annual take was four times greater uh, than before the war. So the danger of war is that it always winds up as an excuse for the government to expand power. So, Phil, I agree with you entirely that there needs to be a way in which we're not allowing the federal government to be the one that makes that decision to go to war. Because each time they have done so, it's been very detrimental to our God-given liberties.
1: Yeah, you know, David, I, I'm listening to this, and, and certainly we're in agreement about all of this. Um, and something has come up, I think it was on Friday, uh, where uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, the entrepreneur, presidential candidate, had stated his position. On uh, a federal statute banning uh, abortion, and it, it's interesting because you you can see how the federal government, uh, even amongst its its uh, its opponents, can be promoted. Its growth can be promoted inadvertently. Now, what had happened in this case was that uh, Ramaswamy had been uh, Apparently confronted on this le- legislation, and said, "Would you support it as president?" And he said, "No, he would not." Even though he was uh, definitely on a personal level pro pro life and anti-abortion, he would not uh, he would not support this legislation because he felt that it was unsound on on, uh, on constitutional grounds. Well, <clears throat> uh, the people from the Heritage Foundation. Uh, went over the top, you know, wow, you know, and, and they called out all the conservatives and all the pro-life people against this uh, guy trying to, to get him to, you know, to, to either recant or to drop out of the race, I'm sure. What they didn't realize is that uh, this had been done before. I think this goes back to about 2007. And, uh, In this case, it was not somebody like Ramaswamy; It was uh, Representative Ron Paul, who was also a presidential candidate. And uh, Ron Paul had transgressed the so-called conservative line by saying that he would not support a federal statute um, that made abortion uh, nationally um, nationally, uh, illegal. And again, he explained, he said, this is not the role of the federal government to, to do that. If you do that, you open the door and you acknowledge that the federal government has the power to control these matters. According to the constitution, the federal government has no control. As soon as you open that door, yes, you may get your, your, uh, Uh, law, your statutory law today, and can be reversed by uh, subsequent Congresses. So Ron Paul was on absolutely correct uh, uh, constitutional foundation. He knew exactly what he was talking about. And of course, the uh, the pro-life people and conservatives leaped all over Ron Paul. Uh, The pro-life leadership in particular uh, did their best to uh, make sure that he did not get any recognition as being pro-life, and he was probably the most pro-life candidate in the nation's history. And the outcome was that uh, uh, the final battle was between uh, Barack Obama and, and uh, uh, John McCain. And John McCain was, by the way, hardly a saint on the side of uh, pro-life. But nonetheless, the the opponents were so opposed the fact that that Ron Paul had the gall to oppose them, even though he was constitutionally correct. They had, you know, he had the gall, and so they basically made him get out of the campaign earlier. And so we ended up with two people: one who was committed, let us say, with uh, to <laughs> all of the the. Uh, Pro-choice legislation, Barack Obama, uh, versus a man who was totally inarticulate and lacking of any any uh, background on healthcare and healthcare economics issues, uh, on life issues. You know, he was a, he was your classic politician. Well, the people saw the difference between the two candidates, and they they voted with their feet away from uh, John McCain. And so instead, and I'm not claiming that, that Ron Paul would have won in 2008. What I am saying here is that at least there would be uh, an educational process that would have occurred and that Obama's ability to put in the so-called Affordable Care Act, which was inaffordable, uh, would have been seriously curtailed. He might not have gotten it through because the the opposition would have been solidified and definitely when the 2012 election came up and Ron Paul was running again <clears throat> there was an opportunity to overthrow uh the the uh, Obama administration so what we see in this is even you know we we can often talk about um the progressives and the socialists being uh, uh the people who are forwarding all of these uh, screwy ideas about expanding government. Well, look, here's a case where conservatives were deeply involved and now they're repeating the mistake. So it's a matter of, you know, you have to dig into these issues and understand your constitution before you jump and and make a disastrous decision.
0: Mm, Amen, because many people want the federal government be, to be doing things that are really not the business of the federal government, which again, you rightly point out, that's why we need to understand our constitution. A constitutional design was not for the federal government to do everything. In fact, the constitutional design was for the federal government to do very few things, mainly only those things focused on relations with other countries, going to war, contracting peace or uh, establishing trade agreements, Those those kind of things. But uh, the the government that would be most uh, in, involved in your life would be your state or your county or your township. Your local government would be th- that which is most involved with you, which, again, is a, a right measure because you are able, far more able to have influence over your state government and over your county and obviously over your town or township than you ever will have over what happens in Washington, D.C., And our constitution was not ever designed for the Washington DC that we see today. In fact, I think it was heritage foundation a few years back did a study looking at everything done by the federal government on a daily basis, basically. And they determined there's probably 90% of what the federal government does on a daily basis is unconstitutional. In other words, they've broken the contract and that's what our constitution is a contract between we, the people we hired somebody to paint, the indoor, uh, you know, doors of the house. And instead, they went out and they cut down a bunch of trees in the backyard. It's like, no, 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 we didn't hire you to cut down trees in the backyard. We hired you to paint these doors. No, no, no. Your contract was to do this and you didn't do it. You did something completely. In fact, you didn't paint the doors at all. Indeed, you look at uh, the commitment in, in our Constitution that uh, one of the things in Article Six is that they guarantee security to the states. That's the job of the federal government to guard the border. That's the guarantee security. They're not guarding the border. They haven't been guarding the border. Even, even under Trump, uh, the bar, border was a better guarded, but it, it was not complete. So we're, we're in a situation where the federal government has been turned upside down from what its original purpose was, but they get away with it because we the people don't know the standard we don't know the limits that are that are placed by our Constitution on the government. And I, I like your image there of a, a chain, you know, that would be a chain that says the dog can only go so far. You know, the the limit on what that dog can reach is limited by the chain. And it was Thomas Jefferson who said chain men down with the. Uh, the chains of the Constitution. That's what is designed to limit what the federal government uh, c- could do. So, yes, we need to revisit these principles and, and uh, we need to instruct Americans about the limits that should be imposed by the Constitution on our federal government.
1: You know, you make a, a good point about the, the Heritage Foundation's revealing that the 90 percent of the federal budget is unconstitutional. Um I would like them to, to make more of that. I mean, I think they have a tremendous idea there. And they've done excellent work, apparently, but it's it's not being followed through. But I think this is a very good example of uh, two ways of thinking about political, political matters. One is, if you're stuck in the good guys versus bad guys uh, mold, you will never figure out how to get out of it. Uh, <clears throat> the Heritage Foundation is neither good guy nor bad guy. They have good ideas and occasionally they have a bad idea. So I'm not attacking the Heritage Foundation in telling you about, uh, you know, the position they've taken in this case. It's just, they have a bad idea in this case. And I think for the most part, their, their ideas about freedom are very good.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amen. And, uh, we, you know, we have some other good organizations that are doing work along those lines, uh, you know, trying to advance freedom, but far too many of what you might call conservative organizations are looking to the federal government to answer the problems. And so they want a new piece of legislation at the federal level, They, you know, some new regulation, wh- what have you. No, no, no. We need to say we have too much already at, at the federal level. We need to go back. And uh, we need to resurrect what state sovereignty is all about. And that state sovereignty, you know, our state constitution, most state constitutions say that the state is sovereign. That is, there are things that the state governments, by the way, remember that the state governments are the one that created the federal government. Federal government had no existence before the states met in convention Philadelphia uh, 1787. And uh, in that convention proposed a new form of government, but that it was the states proposing it. And it was the states that ratified and brought that new government into existence. And the states were supposed to retain all the powers that were not specifically delegated to the federal government by the constitution. And what's happened is uh, progressively the federal government has just ignored those boundaries and steamrolled over uh, the states and done whatever, basically whatever they please, and uh, grabbed from the states whatever powers they wanted, and the states have gone along with it. But that needs to stop. And, and that really takes electing state representatives, and even electing people at the county level, county councils and so forth, who are unwilling to continue to kowtow to the federal government, that aren't, aren't so so concerned about a political career as they are about preserving liberty, and uh, we're at a very dangerous place. We've seen with the uh, the COVID, uh, what I call a scandemic. We've seen there what the federal government did in manipulating the entire population, and it's 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 a very uh, uh, disturbing picture of a tyrannical system. And I guess they're. Rolling out the next level, I know that uh, uh, Biden has put forward a new office to prepare us for the next pandemic, which tells me they're planning one and they're going to they're going to do something similar to what they did with the lockdowns in in, uh, 2020. So we need those on the local level who understand the constitutional limits and are are willing and ready to stand against uh, the federal government.
1: You know, the. uh, the states being the sovereign uh, uh, entities here is the fundamental principle, in in my opinion, and for an uneducated electorate, and that's what we have right now. We have to call it the way it is. It is far easier to make a judgment on a simple federal statute. And the people in the media and the, the talking heads, those who, you know, influence through propaganda are very aware of that. Keep it simple, stupid, they say, the KISS principle, right? But uh, talking principles like what we're doing right now is far more complex, requires more effort on our part, and it also requires a great deal more effort on the part of the listener, the consumer of of the the information. But until we reach that point, uh, we can't rely on an educational system. We should be able to. They should be required to take uh, civics, and the civics should not be propagandized. It should be the basic principles of government that uh, were established at our nation's founding. You know, until we're doing that, there's simply no hope. I mean, we we must get across that bridge. Hmm.
0: Yes. Amen. And you know that's really why we the people Constitution Matters is on the air we're on the radio to conduct that civic education and, and to spread it far and wide and our aim is to have uh, developed an educated citizenry who can discern what is constitutional what is not constitutional who are able to evaluate candidates and uh, you know be able to uh, give them a basic test to see are they constitutional by the way uh, i guess I, I may have shared this last week but uh, one of our students asked uh, vivek ramaswamy what is the purpose of government? And he got pretty close to the target. He said to preserve liberty. But our student there at Camp Constitution said, no, more precisely, our founder said to preserve our God-given rights. And that's the important principle. Because liberty can be defined by anybody, maybe any way you want to define it. But God-given rights is specific. As our founder said, there is a creator God. Our rights come from him. And the purpose of government is to secure those God-given rights. So I was very pleased with our students there. They were able to school, a, you know, a notable presidential candidate. I think he's running third in the in the uh, uh, primary right now in terms of the polling and all that sort of stuff. And who knows, like you say, what's going to happen? Are they going to push him out the door like uh, they did with Ron Paul and that sort of thing? But uh, we need to raise up citizens who, who understand these principles.
1: You know, that's that's an interesting point about the language and how um, liberty and freedom um are really not terribly well defined. Uh, my understanding is that uh, <coughs> the Swahili uh, translation of freedom is a, a word called Uhuru. And Robert Rourke, way back in the '60s, I think, wrote a book about it. And it was about the the Mau Mau uh, insurrections in uh, in Kenya. But uh, <coughs> basically, what it means. Um, what the intent is is license. We would call it license. Do whatever you want. No, <laughs> no, that's just the opposite of the of the classical liberal uh, idea of what liberty is all about. Liberty has always been about uh, remaining within the reasonable constraints of the law, the natural law, and. <clears throat> It's always been about responsibility. I mean, somebody like a John D. Rockefeller who has been attacked so badly uh, over his so-called robber baron characteristics, you know, uh, we ignore the fact that this was a man who donated 50% of his wealth even before the income taxes, 50% of his wealth to charity. You know, it's it's an absolute caricature uh, that has been promoted, and we've got to move away from that kind of, of uh, silly propaganda.
0: Indeed, yeah, and we need people who do care more about their country than they do about you know whatever perks they want, and that's part of the problem. I think is many people have become addicted uh, to the federal largesse, and of course, the federal government doesn't have any money. In fact. If the federal government today were given thirty-two trillion dollars, and I know trillions are a hard number to get to wrap your mind around, so it helps sometimes to to get a visual picture of how much thirty or how much one trillion dollars is. So if you took uh, you had if you had one dollar bills, all you know, thirty you had a trillion one dollar bills, and you were to count them, basically one second at a time, one two three, just one second at a time, it'd take you thirty-two thousand years to count a trillion dollars. But if our federal government had $32 trillion today, it would be broke. That's right. It would be able to pay off its debt and it would come to level. It would be be absolute broke. But we're so bad in debt because people want what they want now. They want to borrow from the future generations so that they can enjoy it today. And that's that's the wrong mindset. We should have a, a mindset that We want, as our founders said in the preamble of the Constitution, the blessings of liberty, not just for ourselves, but for our posterity. And our posterity are not going to have any blessings of liberty when they've been sold into uh, debt bondage, debt slavery or debt serfdom, whatever you would like to call it. But uh, the the rate at which they will have to uh, pay taxes just to pay on the interest, not just the principal, but just the interest on this $32 trillion debt. Uh, they're just tax slaves. They're tax serfs for, uh, for, for their whole lives. And that's a tragedy that, that Americans have accepted uh, these kind of uh, bribes from the federal government to get what we want right now, but actually be ruining uh, liberty for our posterity.
1: Uh, let me um, extend on that point that you made about the blessings of liberty for ourselves and for uh, posterity, which is the classic idea of uh, uh, patriotism. True patriotism, not the false patriotism we often often seen uh, parade, uh, paraded around. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to point out that if you look at those who are involved in the surveillance uh, community, the so-called spies, if you will, and consider I mean, every every position, I think has its career bias. Uh, I'm I'm probably biased as an information systems person. I I would acknowledge that. But if you look at at the career bias of the spy, basically it's not true patriotism. They are as interested in building a large central government in which they play a major role in detecting enemies you think of that and realize that 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 incentive is counter to the true needs of our country that they these people if they are put into a position, position of greater power will employ that power against the people hmm.
0: excellent point because uh, we see that in the history of all of these spy agencies. In fact, it was, uh, I think it was um, uh, uh, the president uh, uh, well, of no, Eisenhower warned us about the military industrial complex, a good warning. Uh, but before him, of course, was the creation of the CIA. Uh, and the creation of the CIA has been a disaster when we look at what it has done to our own country and our own people, and then what it's done all around the world and overthrowing governments and all of that mess. And and it was a tragedy. And it was recognized that this was a mistake. We should have never done this, should have never started down this road. And there was one president who threatened to end it. And he said he wanted to smash the CIA into a thousand shards. And shortly thereafter, he was shot to death in in Dallas. Uh, And who knows if there's a direct connection? We know that there were people um, involved in the CIA, people like uh, George H.W. Bush. That the CIA operatives who were there in Dallas and so on—we don't know, you know, exactly—but it's very interesting. The only president that has threatened to get rid of the CIA, although I understand uh, Vivek Ramaswamy in the the speech we heard at Camp American from him that he said he would like to abolish the FBI. And I believe he also said the CIA. And so he's got a, a good hit list. Get rid of the Department of Education. Amen. <laughs> and get rid of most of these federal agencies because most of these three-letter alphabet agencies are unconstitutional. We the people ne- never gave the federal government the authority to create these institutions and to spend money and, and you know to hire spies like you're talking about whose real goal, if they got their wish, would be to take away our, our liberty.
1: You know these these agencies are not just non productive uh, in the the economy; they are counterproductive. They they destroy wealth that has already been created by the the uh, uh, productive sector. So you know we we have to look at the economics of this as well as the the political side of it. Now you mentioned the CIA, and um, my initial comments were about the. Uh, about defining enemies. Isn't it interesting that one of the notorious uh, sad stories of the CIA is creating Iran as an enemy. That was done by the CIA in the, the 1950s, as I recall. And the people have never forgotten.
0: Yeah, the people the people of that country, they knew who their enemy was. It was the CIA, and they identified that with, with we, the people of these United States who were not in favor of what they were doing and overthrowing one regime and installing the Shah and all, all the evil that they did there. Well, this is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we are pleased to be able to bring you uh, all the freedom airways of WFYL, The American View, which simply put, our founders said it in the Declaration of Independence, there is a creator God, our rights come from him, from him alone, And the only purpose, we need to underline that word only, the only purpose of human civil government is to protect and defend those God-given rights, which means everything else the government is doing it shouldn't be doing. And uh, we invite you to join us next Friday as we continue our discussion of the foundational principles for a constitutional republic. Join us 8 a.m. Friday morning. We the people, the Constitution Matters.